Let's take our Bible for one last time and go to Isaiah chapter 66. The very end of this wonderful gospel of Isaiah that we have been in for nearly two years. It's a wonderful book. It's, it's a sad occasion for me and perhaps for you as well. Of course, we can always come back to it and read it. But, but it's like saying goodbye to a close friend that we've been in and been with year after week after week after week for nearly a couple of years We come to Isaiah chapter 66. I'm going to preach a sermon that I have entitled, God is exalted and the kingdom of God is coming. Therefore, you and I must worship him humbly. The mountain man was climbing. The traveler went and he goes. And he goes higher, and he goes higher, and he goes higher. Until he reaches the very top of what's called Mount Blanc. That is translated the White Mountain. It's the tallest peak of the Alps at 15,780 feet, an elevation located right in between France and Italy. And no doubt an amazing hike by day, seeing the, the grandeur and the splendor and the, and the blinding whiteness of the snow-covered mountains and the sheer majesty of the cliffs and all of the rock formations. What a majestic sight that would be. And then by night, by night is traveling up this mountain, beholding the sky lit and glittered with innumerable stars and the Milky Way. And, and it seems as though the stars are so close, you might also almost be able to reach out your hand and grab a hold of the stars and touch them. What a sight that would be so breathtaking. One might inevitably come to the position on this hike and reaching the top of Mont Blanc of this thought. I feel so small. I feel so puny. I feel so weak, so insignificant. I feel so tiny. And the book of Isaiah does just that. For our hearts in this chapter today. Isaiah chapter 66 does that to our hearts. Because we will behold God in his majesty. God in his glory. God in his power. And when we behold God rightly. We will inevitably come to the point where we say. I feel so puny. Weak. Small. Powerless. Because what we have found in the book of Isaiah and what we see in the chapter here today is that God is passionately committed to his own glory. Passionately committed to his own glory. And because he is so passionately committed to his own glory, friend, he deserves your worship and my worship. And he wants your heart. And he shows us his faithfulness and he beckons your trust and he is infinitely trustworthy. Infinitely. The Bible that you and I have open before us here today, the Bible is the revelation from God. 
so that you can know God and you can love God and you can trust God and you can obey God. And when we open up the revelation from God, we learn that God is the very center of everything in the universe. He's the center. Everything is from God. Everything is through God and everything is to God. He decreed it. He sustains it. He receives glory from everything. What a God. He is exalted and enthroned. He is majestic. He is splendid. He is the king over all kings. And Isaiah has shown us such a God all the weeks that we have come together to look into this great book. You'll remember that Isaiah chapters 40 to 60, uh, 40 to 48 were nine chapters where God spoke to his people saying, I'm going to deliver you physically out of exile. And he would do that through the deliverer. His name was Cyrus. He was a king of media. And then the following nine chapters in Isaiah chapters 49 to 57, God said, I'm going to deliver you spiritually from the power of your sin, not through a human deliverer, but through the divine suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He is man who came to die for his people. And then the final nine chapters that we've been looking at in Isaiah 58 all the way now to the end, chapter 66, is God saying to his people, I will deliver you in the end, eschatologically, from the curse in the future kingdom. It's an amazing, a wonderful way out Isaiah has outlined and structured his book. In Isaiah chapter 60, he talked about the future kingdom living. In chapter 61, he talked about the kingdom savior. In chapter 62, he talked about the kingdom city of Jerusalem. In chapter 63, we learned about the king's return and praying for the kingdom. In chapter 64, we saw how to pray for kingdom revival. In chapter 65, last week, we saw the kingdom conditions. What will the future thousand-year kingdom be like? And now, at the end of the book, chapter 66, it's an amazing conclusion where we are going to see the preeminence of God. We're going to see the promises of the future. And the torment that will come on all unbelievers. We're going to see the bigness of God. We're going to see the plans of God. And we're going to see the warning to those who would reject God. But our chapter, our chapter is a theological chapter. It's so theological because it shows us the mighty majesty of God. And I want you to just survey the chapter with me for a minute because I want to show you how we can draw out the character of God from this chapter alone. Look with me at verse 1. We see the exaltation of God. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is a house that you could build for me, a place that I may rest? God is so great, so exalted, so mighty that the heavens are his throne. But look at verse 2. We see the power of God. My hand made all these things and all these things came into being, declares the Lord by his power. 
God is the powerful one. He made everything. Look at verse 2 at the very end. We also see the nearness of God. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So God is exalted. He is powerful. But he's also near. He is a God who is intimate with his people. Look at verse 4. We see the patience of God. I choose their punishments and I will bring on them what they dread because I called and no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen and they did that which is evil in my sight. God, God called, he called, he called. He was patient, he was patient, he was patient. We see also that God is faithful. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, we read, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? We're going to see that God is faithful to Israel, to the people of Zion, and God is faithful to his promises, and she will be saved. We see the comfort of God. Look at verse 13. Verse, verse 13 tells us, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. We have a powerful God. We have an exalted God. We have a patient God. We have a faithful God and a comforting God. But not only that, if you look at the end of verse 14, the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants and he will be indignant toward his enemies. He is an angry God. He is a God who is indignant and wrathful toward unbelievers who reject him. We see that again in verse 16. Notice the justice of God. The Lord will execute judgment by fire and his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. God is the judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. And he will execute judgment upon all flesh who reject him. Look at verse 18. Notice the plan of God. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and all tongues. Church family, don't ever think that this world is spiraling out of control. It might be humanly speaking, but it's not according to God's plan. God has a plan. He has a perfect plan. And nothing is ever outside of his decreed, ordained plan. He has a perfect, precise timing for all things. Notice at the end of verse 18, all the nations will come and see my glory. We see the glory of God. He's a God of weight, a God of worth, a God of brilliance, a God of perfection. We see in verse 23... It shall come from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. He is a supreme God. Do you see that in your Bible there? All mankind, all flesh are going to come and bow down before the Lord. He is supreme. God alone. We see the supremacy of God. And then finally, at the end of verse 24, we see here that they will go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. This is the eternal punishment that will come from God to all transgressors who die in unbelief. I mean, this is a chapter that shows us the majesty of God. Our God is exalted, powerful, imminent, patient, faithful. He is the comforting God, the angry God, the just God. He has a perfect plan, infinitely glorious, totally supreme, and one who will punish. 
all unbelievers. I mean, that's a pretty well-rounded theology proper, a theology of God that we can bring out from this chapter alone. And so Isaiah ends his book, not so that you would look inward to trust in yourself, but so that you would look upward to trust in the awesome, mighty God. We want to do that today. We want to see the greatness of God. We want to see the glory of our God. Now, as I preach, I want to remind you of my duty and my responsibility. I'm not here to just inform your mind. That would be called a lecture. I'm not a lecturer. I'm a preacher. I want to inform your mind. I want to teach you. But I also want to influence your will. I want to tell you, here's what God wants you to do. I want to to tell you how you should act in light of God's word and God's revelation. But I don't merely want to inform your mind and and then influence your will, but I want to inflame your heart so that your heart will love God and want to follow him. So I'm going after your mind and your will and your heart in the preaching of the word of God. In this wonderful chapter, I want to give you three serious and pressing implications for your life from this chapter. These are serious. These are sobering. These are pressing. It's almost as though Isaiah finishes this wonderful book with these serious, these pressing, these important implications for us so that we might know God, know how to live, love him, and serve him with all of our hearts. Let me give you the three headings so you can jot them down and then we'll Read the text as we go. First, here's the first serious implication. Number one, you must tremble before God's word. You must tremble before God's word. Second, what I want to show you, the second serious implication is you must trust in God's perfect plan. You must trust in God's perfect plan. And then third, what I want to show you, the third serious and pressing implication is that you must triumph in God's global glory. Triumph in God's global glory. So we're going to work through each of these together as we conclude this wonderful book, this wonderful, wonderful gospel of Isaiah that we might call it. But let's begin in verses 1 to 6 with the first serious implication. You must tremble before God's true word. Look at verse 1. Follow with me. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. And he who offers a grain offering is like the one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. And they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. So I will choose their punishments and will bring on them what they dread because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. And they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you 
Who exclude you for my name's sake? They have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But they will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. What does God want? You see it right there in verse 2 at the end. He wants you to be humble. He wants you to be contrite of spirit. He wants you to tremble at his word. I think the more that you and I grow in love for God, the more that you and I grow in our sanctification, the more that we love what God loves, we hate what God hates, and we, we feel the sadness and the indignation when God's name is blasphemed. It's sad that there are so many who do not fear God, who do not tremble at his word, but they mock God and they mock his word. That was me, wasn't it? That was you before God saved us. It's so many all around us just this week. In fact, on August 22nd, an article came out describing how there was an evangelist who went to the streets proclaiming the gospel. He was physically attacked. The Bible was ripped out of his hands. The Bible was torn to pieces. They ripped out the pages of the Bible. They even threw the Bible on the ground and kicked it around in a circle like a soccer ball. And then the video even showed the people throwing the Bible into a public toilet. And guess what? The preacher was arrested. He was arrested for reading and preaching the Bible in public. We, we, we ought to fear God. We ought to tremble before his majesty, not think that we are over God. But so many do. So many do. What, what does God want? What, what does God want? What should we learn from these opening verses in this chapter about the serious and pressing implications of Isaiah's writing for us? Well... Let me give you three very helpful ways that we can think about this. In verse 1, there must be a proper estimation of God. You need to think about God rightly. Now, in the 2 o'clock hour today, we heard a great Family Bible Hour teaching on living by our doctrine, not by our feelings. It's a must-listen to. Very, very helpful. That's what verse 1 does right here. It tells us you have to think rightly about God. Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me, and where is a place that I might rest? Ha! We ought to exalt God because he sits on heaven's throne and the earth is the footstool where, as it were, God, in the image, might plop his feet on top of the earth. God is so exalted. Psalm 95 tells us that the earth is his footstool. We are to bow before the Lord. We are to worship him because he is holy. God says, how could you build a house big enough for me? How could you contain God? This is the doctrine of the immensity of God. God can't be contained. He's immense. He's big. He's mighty. He's awesome. We have to think about God rightly. A proper estimation of God. Second, there must be a trembling disposition before the scriptures. John Calvin said, we ought to treat the Bible with the same honor that we treat God. 
Because the Bible is the very word of God. And that's what verse 2 tells us. My hand made all these things. And all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit. And the one who trembles at my word. This is what he said earlier in chapter 57. God said in chapter 57, verse 15, thus is the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. If you want to know God, if you want to be intimate with God, if you want to be near to God, there are three requirements that he says right here in verse 2. God is looking. He is near. He shows himself to the one who is marked by three qualities. Number one, the one who is humble. The Hebrew word for humble means those who take the lowest place before God. The lowly, the poor, the needy, the one who depends fully on God, the one who loves to talk about God, the one who loves to glorify God, the one who wants to praise God. To this one I will look, to him who is humble. The second quality is he must be contrite of spirit. Now, this is an interesting Hebrew word. It's a really rare Hebrew word. The word in Hebrew means to be crippled. It means that you're struck with an inability. You're weak. It's like the inability in spiritual matters. To be contrite of spirit here in verse 2 is like saying, God, I need you. I can do nothing on my own. I need you. I am helpless to please you, God, on my own. I can't bring myself to you on my own. I need God. God is looking to the one who is humble, to the one who is contrite in spirit, and then third, to the one who trembles at his word. Another interesting Hebrew word for trembling, it means to quake. It means to stand humbly before God with such an ambition that I am longing to obey the king. He is so exalted that I tremble before him, but that trembling includes the ambition to obey. Don't miss that key. It's not just, yeah, 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 he's powerful. It's, I want to obey the one who is powerful. It's a hastening to obedience. It's a hurrying to follow after God. Here's the one I look after. The one who is humble, the one who is contrite of spirit, and the one who trembles at my word. So there ought to be a proper estimation of God in verse 1. There ought to be a proper trembling disposition before scripture in verse 2. But now verses 3 to 6 tells us that there ought to be a heartfelt forsaking of all abominations. Well, verses 3 to 6 is a very colorful and a very poetic and a very descriptive account of the hypocritical worship of Israel at that time. They're just kind of going through the motions. They're just sort of worshiping God on the outside. They're like the Pharisees in Matthew 23 when Jesus said, you just do all of your deeds to be noticed by men. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're foul and corrupt. 
Well, verses 3 through 6 is a lot of description in a poetic way about Israel and their hypocrisy. Fake. Hypocritical. The people's religious sacrifices and their offerings were merely external and just outward and just ritualistic. Look at verse 3. Just look at how he describes it here. The one who kills an ox, he's just kind of going through the motions as if he were just slaying a man. It's sarcastic, verse 3. And the one who sacrifices a lamb in the worship courts is like one who breaks a dog's neck. It's like it's not for God. You're just kind of going through motions, just doing another event. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. And you've chosen your own ways and you've delighted in your abominations. God says, I don't want your external worship. I don't need the bull. I don't need the lamb. I don't need your incense. I want your heart. Remember the account in John chapter 4 when Jesus is passing through with the disciples going from Judea to Galilee and he goes through Samaria. In the middle of the day, he meets a woman. We call her the Samaritan woman and they engage in a conversation together. And Jesus says in John 4, 23, that the father is desiring worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Spirit meaning from the heart genuinely and in truth, according to the Bible. God wants your genuine heart worship and he wants your worship to be conformed to the scriptures. But the Pharisees didn't do that. He called them a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're like dead men's bones. You're like a bowl. On the outside, you look fine, but on the inside, it's dirty and unclean. Jesus said in Matthew 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before men so that you're noticed by men. You see, knowing God and knowing his word is what produces a heartfelt reverence for God and a trembling before God and his word. You say, well, well, Jeff, I, I want to tremble before God. I, I want to be marked by verse 2, not verses 3 to 6. I don't want to have the false worship. I want to have the true humility of heart. So help me out. How do I do that? Well, if you and I, in this first sober implication to tremble before God's word, what does that look like? If we really tremble before God and his word, it means we will maintain humiliation over our own damnable corruption. Who am I? Who who am I? God, why, why me? It's what Isaiah said earlier in chapter 6. Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. There's a, there's a humiliation over our own corruption, over our own sin condition. Who are we that God would demonstrate his love and pour out his grace upon us? To tremble before God then also includes an understanding of God's majestic and holy power. God, you're powerful. God, you are majestic. God, you are holy. God, you are different. God, you are exalted. God, you are set apart from us. 
To tremble before God not only then includes humiliation over our sin condition and understanding God's power, but then third, when we tremble before God, it leads to a hunger for and a submission to every word of Scripture. It's a hunger to read the word. It's a hunger to know the word. It's a hunger to have relationship with God in his word. And then we submit to it. We're not Lord over it. We are slaves to it. And we submit to our God. This is the one that God looks. This is the one to whom God is intimate with. We must tremble before God's true word. So Isaiah, as he's coming to the close of his book, the close of this long prophecy with the serious and pressing implication, he says in verses 1 to 6, you've got to tremble before God's true word. But let me give you the second serious and pressing implication. The second is this. You must trust in God's perfect plan. You need to trust in God's perfect plan. You know, it was on May 14th, 1948, when David Ben-Gurion proclaimed the state of Israel. The state of Israel had been birthed. Well, that's true. That's political Israel. It was born in 1948. But these verses, verses 7 to 9, are going to lead us to the understanding that there's coming a day when there's going to be a spiritual birth of Israel. Not just a political birth of a nation, but a spiritual birth of the people in the future. Verses 7 to 9, you and I need to see this because our God is sovereign. Our God is in control. And it's like each day that passes, Israel seems to be getting itself in more and more of a dangerous situation globally. But not with God. Verse 7. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. You think, that's a little odd. Well, here's clarity in verse 8. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth, but then not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I, who gives delivery, shut the womb, says your God? These verses are teaching us that God has a plan for the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Isaiah's people, the nation of Zion, the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel. And we are called in Isaiah's words to trust in the perfect plan of God. And it all has to do with the restoration of Israel in the future. Let me show you this in a couple of ways, just very simply. Notice in verse 7, we see the quickness of the restoration. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before the pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Now, I don't know this by experience, okay? And I'm kind of thankful for that. I've seen childbirth, but I have not experienced that. But the point of verse 7 is that when the Jewish people are restored by God and they return to the land and they are regenerated by God, it will be so quick... 
that it will be like a woman who is giving birth to a son before she even has any labor pains. It'll be quick. It'll be so swift. It'll be suddenly that the nation of Israel will be reborn, that the Jews will be saved in one day. It happens quickly. It happens with speed. It's what Hosea said. Let me just read that for you in Hosea chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us and he will revive us after two days and he will raise us up on the third day so that we might live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord for his going forth is as certain as the dawn and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. God is going to come quickly and he's going to deliver and save and redeem his people quickly. Before or as soon as the woman has any labor pains, it's born. Verse 8, notice the amazement. Not just the quickness in verse 7. Notice the amazement in verse 8. Oh, this is awesome. Who has heard of such a thing? I mean, who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Now, i got to get technical in Hebrew for one sec with you. This is not like a thousand years is as one day kind of a language in the scriptures. This is not that. This is a technical Hebrew phrase like in Genesis 1. There was evening and there was morning. The one day. This is a 24-hour period. Right here in verse 8, a land is going to be born, regenerated, reconverted to God in one day. This is... This is such an amazing prophecy regarding the people of Israel in the future. This is what we read in Zechariah chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him like one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him. So there's going to come a day when the Jewish people at the end of the tribulation in the future, they will see Jesus coming from heaven. They will put their faith in him. They will be regenerated and it will happen in one day. Chapter 13 of Zechariah, verse 1, In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for iniquity. Unless there's any confusion, Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 9 clarifies it again. The stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone or seven eyes, behold, I will engrave an inscription on it and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. You can go to Israel today. You can go to the Western Wall today. You can go to the city of Jerusalem today and it looks like a pagan city just like New York or Los Angeles. The people are self-righteous and and they've turned away from God and they've turned away from believing in their Messiah. But one day there is coming the great hope for the Jewish people. Just like God said to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 and all through the scriptures. 
When Israel will be reborn as a nation. It'll be quick. It'll be amazing. And then verse 9. Look at our chapter. Isaiah verse 9. Then shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord. Shall I who give delivery shut the womb? What's the point here? God is the worker. So as surely as a woman's womb opens... For delivery, so God will do for Jerusalem what he has promised to do for Jerusalem. He's going to open his heart. He's going to fulfill his plans. And the work that God begins, he will finish. And he made a covenant to the Jewish people Israel and he will fulfill it. So these three verses are Isaiah giving hope to his people and hope to you and I to understand what Isaiah is saying, that God has a perfect plan. You and I, you say, well, what does that mean for me? It means a ton. Because if God is faithful to Israel, guess what? You know he's faithful to you. But if God redefines terms or if he's not faithful to Israel or if he changes his covenants from them and replaces it with something else, then you and I have every reason to be fearful. What is God going to do to the nation of Israel in the future? Listen to Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 10. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Don't be dismayed, for I will save you and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob will return, and they will be quiet, and they will live at ease, and no one will make them afraid. Pause real quick. Has that happened? The Jewish people today, the land of Israel, are not living in ease. They're surrounded by all kinds of nations that want to annihilate them. But God says there's coming a day when no one will make you afraid. Verse 11 of Jeremiah 30. I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you. But I will no me- by no means leave you unpunished. You will be my people. I will be your God. In the latter days, you will understand this. And then Jeremiah 31, 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Church family, you and I, talking about Israel, talking about the Jewish people, talking about God's plan for the future, so what? It means that your God is in control of history. And it means that all of human history and what you see on the headlines globally is not an accident. But God is working and unfolding the plan that he has decreed from long ago and he's working it out day by day. And you and I have a part to play in that. And what that means for you and for me is that we must trust God's perfect plan. Trust God's perfect plan. Christian, for you and for me, that means you've got to rely on God. That means you've got to lean on God. You've got to rest in God. You need to trust God's plan even, listen, even when it seems like your plans are unraveling. Trust God. I don't know what's going to happen Tomorrow or this week or this year or the next couple of years for our nation or for other nations of the world. I don't know. 
But God has given clarity in the word so that we might not only tremble before God, but trust in our God. He has a perfect plan, and it is the perfect plan that will bring him glory. Church family, let's trust in God's perfect plan. So, the sober and the pressing implications for us from this chapter are not only for you and for me to tremble before God's true word. Second of all, that you and I would trust in God's perfect plan. But let me give you the third sober and pressing implication. Number three, you and I must triumph in God's global glory. Triumph in God's global glory. You know, God is not a me-centered God. Like, Jeff, he's not a me-centered God. He's a God-centered God. The people today trying to live for themselves and find fulfillment in themselves, as if their world revolved around themselves as the son of their own universe. And it's doomed to failure. Because God is a God-centered God. And your joy is increased... Insofar as you trust in this God. So much of the happiness in the present comes from your hope in the future. And that's where Isaiah leaves us. Yes, we ought to know God. Yes, we ought to worship God. Yes, we ought to tremble before God and trust in God. But he wants you to know God's plan for the future. John Walvoord, in writing about the kingdom which will last for a thousand years on earth. He said, when you think of the kingdom, you have to summarize all of your thoughts in three simple ways. Number one, it will be a kingdom that will rule the whole earth. Psalm 2. Second, he said, it'll be a kingdom of absolute authority and power from King Jesus. Psalm 110. Third, it will be a kingdom of perfect righteousness. And perfect justice and order on the world. Isaiah chapter 11. I mean, let's just kind of illustrate this for a moment. Because because there's a whole lot of talk nowadays. And I'm going to mention it because you're going to see it this week online. There's so much talk about world alliances. And one world government. And bringing the world together. And world economics. And Chrislam. And unifying peoples together. On and on these phrases could go. Look. It would be easier. It would be easier for ants to rebuild the Swiss Alps with all the trees and plants and animals and creatures and waterfalls and lakes. It would be easier for that to happen than it would be for men to usher in some era of world peace. No people could ever do that. It just can't happen by man's abilities. Men could have all the genius they want. They could have all the engineering they want, all the science, all the research, all the things of this world. But no man can ever usher in world peace. Why? Because this is what God does for his glory by his power in his perfect time. Let me show you. What is the future kingdom going to be like? In verses 10 to 14... You and I can rejoice in the coming glory of the city of Jerusalem. God is not done with Jerusalem. 
Look at verse 10. Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn for her, so that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breaths, so that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed and you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad. I mean, we've seen this all over the book of Isaiah. It began in chapter 1. God promised the restoration for Jerusalem. We saw it recently in Isaiah chapter 60, in the whole chapter 62. That the city of Jerusalem will become a glorious city. It will be the hub of the future worldwide kingdom, the center point, And it will bring honor to Jehovah. He calls it in Zechariah, the apple of his eye. Jerusalem, one day, will be the center of the whole earth. It will be the center of the kingdom rule. It will be glorious. It will be protected by King Jesus. It will be greatly enlarged over the current and former areas. It will be accessible to all peoples in the world. Jerusalem will be the center of worship. It will continue and endure, not just for a thousand years, but even remade for the future eternity as well. Let's long for God's plan of a restored Jerusalem. But not only does he... Restore Jerusalem. Look at verses 14 to 17. God is going to bring doom upon the ungodly. Now, these are sobering verses here, and I think these refer to the second coming of Christ. Look at verse 14. Then you will see this. And your heart will be glad and your bones will flourish like the new grass and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants and he will be indignant toward his enemies for behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire and the Lord will execute judgment by fire and his sword on all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens following one another, they who eat swine's flesh, detestable things and mice, they will come to an end altogether. Look, God is not joking. God isn't playing games. When Isaiah the prophet says through his revelation from God that God is indignant toward his enemies, That he is hot with anger toward his enemies. It's one thing to have a a person mad at you. It's a whole different thing to have God mad at you. And God is the one who executes judgment by fire. And he is the one who slays the wicked by his own sword. Our God will come and bring judgment. Revelation 19 talks about that when he comes on a white horse. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 talks about that when he brings judgment upon the ungodly. But after the second coming, well, then what happens? What's the future kingdom like? Well, now in verses 18 to 21, check this out regarding the future. All nations are going to come to Zion, Jerusalem, to worship Jesus. 
Now, I know I've said that a lot in our recent weeks in the book of Isaiah, but I want you to see it right here. Follow with me, verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and they will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Rosh, Tubal, Javan, to the distant coastlands, that they have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. Verse 20, then they, that is the nations, they will bring all your brethren, that's the Jews, the Israel, from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on house, horses and chariots and Litters and mules and camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And I will take some of them, that is the Gentiles, for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Now, this is interesting because if you and I survey history and even look at current history, Gentile nations have come to Jerusalem to attack it and to destroy it. But right here, according to the testimony of God, verses 18 to 21, one day in the future earthly kingdom, the nations will come and they will worship and they will glorify Jesus Christ as the only Savior, the only God, the only one worthy of praise. Now, it's so specific on this earth that Isaiah even mentions nations, like by name. Look at it right here in the middle of verse 19. He talks about Tarshish, that's Spain. And then he talks about the, the, the nation of Put, that's Ethiopia, and together with modern-day Somalia. And then Lud, well, that's Turkey, one of the most antagonistic nations currently toward Israel. But one day they will come to worship Jesus. What about Meshach? Well, those are some kind of archers or warriors, probably in modern-day Turkey. Rosh, that's Russia. Tubal, modern-day Russia. And then Javan, that's Greece. And then many other coastlands. What's the point? The evangelism message of the glory of God is going to spread to all the earth in the kingdom. And they will come and worship the Lord. Look, yesterday a group of us went out to Bush Stadium, preached the gospel for the game last night. The nations are not right now seeking Jesus. They're ignoring him. At least here locally. But there's other places in the world where we could be imprisoned or put to death for doing that in public. So we are not living in a time when all nations are coming to declare and worship and see the glory of God in Jerusalem. But one day it's going to happen. You and I think that just seems so crazy to me to even, to even ponder that. It may. But our God is the God who said, the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool. Our God is big. Our God is mighty. Our God is majestic. Amazing. And then in verse 22 to 23, there is this amazing, wonderful couple of verses right here that talks about how the nations and the Jews will worship the Lord. 
In the kingdom, they will worship the Lord. Verse 22, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make endure before me, declares the Lord. The point here is God is going to make a new kind of life, a new heavens, a new earth for the kingdom. And just as that endures, so Israel, verse 22, your offspring and your name will endure. The Jewish people, the people of Israel will endure. In verse 23, they will come and bow down before the Lord in worship. But when we think about the future kingdom, and there's one more point Isaiah ends with. I want you to look at verse 24. And this is important for all of us because Isaiah ends with one of the most sobering phrases and verses in all of the Bible. Then they will go forth and they will look, that is the believers, the worshipers, those who bow down, they will look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. And that's the end of the book. What a... What a sober warning. What a, what a final word. Are you saying that in the kingdom, the doom and the smoke and the fire will be seen upon unbelievers, which will continue, I believe, into eternity? Well, that's what Isaiah 13 and Revelation 19 teaches. That even into eternity and in the kingdom, the doom and the smoke and the fire and the torment will be seen. I'm not sure if I understand how all that works. But verse 24 is a sober warning. That all flesh is going to come and bow down before God, verse 23. All flesh is going to bow down before Christ, but 24. But those who don't, those who don't bow down to Christ, who have transgressed, not just done a real bad sin, but they've broken God's law. They will suffer unquenchable fire and they will be an abhorrence to all flesh forever. What is so scary about verse 24 is it teaches three main things about the judgment of God. Number one, the conscience, which will torment. Number two, the continuance of the torment. And number three, the intensity of the torment. All of those who don't bow the knee to King Jesus... All of those who have transgressed God's law and who are not righteous by faith, they will receive the judgment of God, the conscience of torment, the continuance of torment, the intensity of torment. Notice we see the conscience there in verse 24. Where their worm will not die. That's the gnawing conscience that will live on forever. And then the fire will not be quenched. That is the continuance of the torment in God's judgment. And then the intensity as well. They will be an abhorrence and a curse to all mankind. Someone once said... 
I won't come to, I won't come to your church because you're a, a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And I said, well, if the text says it, I'm going to preach it. And Isaiah ends his prophecy with a warning. Verse 23 is come and come and bow down. Yes, those in the kingdom, all of them will come and, and bow and worship before the Lord. But if you don't, if you don't, God will find you. And God will catch you. And your conscience will live on forever. And the continuance of this judgment will go on forever. And the intensity of God's fiery wrath will go on forever. That's why it's totally true to say the phrase, you either turn or burn. You need to trust God or you'll perish. You need to rest in God or you're going to suffer wrath from God. Surrender. Surrender to this great God. Surrender to him now. Believe upon him before he slays you in his wrath. Or tremble. Tremble before him now. Lest you be crushed by him later. The Lord longs to be gracious to his people. He is a patient God, willing to save, willing to pardon. We say with G. Campbell Morgan in conclusion, he said the timeless message of the whole book of Isaiah is that we have to acknowledge that our God rules all of human life on every level, individually, nationally, historically, and prophetically. And the only hope for the human failure caused by the enslavement to sin, the only hope is divine redemption that a God of grace provides. The only hope is coming to the one whom God provides. And here's the good news. God is not only willing to save, and he's not only able to save, but he's eager to save. It's a wonderful chapter. A wonderful chapter with three sober implications for us. Number one, we must tremble before God's word. Number two, we must trust in God's perfect plan. And number three, we must triumph in God's global glory. So if I summarize the book like this, we'll come back to it next week in a final summarizing jet tour, but... Just very briefly, in closing, Isaiah 55 says, You and I must seek the Lord while he may be found. Why? Because Isaiah 53 says, Every one of us is turned, each one to his own way. Why should you turn to God? Isaiah 30 says, Because the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and he is waiting on high to have compassion upon you. And early in chapter 1, God said this, Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they will be made like wool. So, come to this God. Trust in this God. Hope in this God. Lean on this God. Because Christian, one day, one day, Isaiah 33:17 will be true 
for you that your eyes will see the King in all of his beauty. May today be the day that if you have never come to Christ, that you would trust in him, choose wisely, and call upon his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for the way.